What's really going on in the heads and hearts of the humans around you? I'm Mads Grummet, journalist, entrepreneur and startup investor. And I'm Sabina Reid, psychologist, speaker and media commentator. And this is Human Cogs, a podcast about the universal experiences that really matter and the candid conversations we need to have to share them. If you like Human Cogs, we'd love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. That way we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. Jeremy McVean is a marketing and communications expert who has held senior roles at Clemenger's, Young and Rubicum and Ausstereo, among others, before deciding that he wanted to use his comms expertise and insights for good, not evil. This realisation led Jeremy to share his marketing and digital strategy nows with the Royal Women's Hospital, Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and the Movember Foundation. And in 2019, Jeremy co-founded The Fatherhood, a dad-focused media platform to shine the light on the importance of fatherhood and to help guide others to thrive and survive in the only job that really counts, fatherhood and parenting. Along the way, he cites a midlife crisis and a divorce as significant milestones that brought both pain and growth. In this chat, Jeremy shares the lessons he's learned along the way to carve out meaningful work, earn a living, and to bond deeply with his three kids. He shares the most powerful tool he knows to connect with others and what he wishes his now ex-wife knew about the way he thinks and feels today, four years since they separated. It's conversations like these that really remind me why Human Cogs exists. If you are searching for work with meaning or navigating a separation or simply wanting to connect more deeply with your kids or wondering what fatherhood is all about, then this conversation is for you. And if you'd like to just lean in more to others, wherever they are in your life and also to yourself, then I know you are going to love Jeremy and his raw curiosity, exploration, warmth, and the ahas that he has discovered along the way. Here's my chat with Jeremy. Jeremy, I'm just going to call it how it is. We were put in touch and you were recommended to me as a guest for Human Cogs. We then had a pre-chat and we could have talked for hours, Mm. so much so that I actually didn't know where I wanted to start in this chat and I probably still don't. In a professional capacity, you've got a background in marketing. You were at Clemenger's and um, Osterio in senior marketing and comms roles. Tell us a bit about that and how that led you to the work that you're doing today. Yeah, so my background is definitely like marketing and comms, agency world and media, Southern Cross Stereo, like you said. And then what actually happened, it was almost like a midlife crisis moment happened. I was watching um, a documentary featuring a guy called Gavin Larkin who started Are You OK Day? Um, quite a tragic story. He died from cancer. But for me, it was a, real, a really pivotal moment because I saw this person that had a similar background to me that was using their communication skills for good, not evil. Mm. Um, so it was, it was like, all right, because ma- before that point, I thought, well, I'm a marketing guy, and so I'm going to sell loaves of bread or what, widgets for the rest of my life. And I thought, well, and I was seeking something with a more purpose, and that didn't necessarily mean solving world hunger. I was just turning up to work and and doing something that had an, an impact and a, a meaningful impact from my perspective. And an example I often talk about is if putting runners on people and getting them more physically active is is a meaningful impact to me, which it is, well, that's great. Working on Nike or Lululemon um, would be a, a, an answer to that brief. Um, so seeing that documentary, it lit me up because I could see someone that had a similar background to me off working in this space. So it led to me... Resigning from my job, I love Southern Cross Stereo, but just felt like it was time for a shift. And I had a really supportive partner at the time that was sort of saying, do it, do it, do it. Um, and that led to me down this path. I'm in the health space now. I work with Movember. Um, I was consulting at the time. My first job out of that world was consulting at the Women's Hospital. 
um, in digital strategy, which was a huge culture shift. Imagine going from media business, Southern Cross Stereo, fast moving into a hospital, risk averse environment, just absolute huge culture shock. Um, but it got me on this path to there. I've been at Peter Mac and doing similar work there, helping them embrace digital technology. But at the heart of it all, I think, is communication and connection. That's the stuff that I like. So whether it's working on an ad agency, an ad campaign, it's really similar things when you break it down. It's understanding who you're trying to influence and in what way and what you're trying to ask. It's a behaviour thing, what you're trying to ask them to do. And so whether you're trying to sell a loaf of bread to them or in the work that I do with Movember, encourage men to be more open, it's really similar tools. And now I'm re- I feel really lucky to be able to work in a space where I'm doing something I'm passionate about, encouraging men to have more open and authentic conversations and going, right, well, what's stopping them doing that? And then how do we encourage them to do it? How do we role model it? And all the same tools are, are used to bring about change that for whatever reason, probably because of my background, let's talk about it, psych. I'm not sure oh, why this stuff <laughs> lights me up, but it does. Lie on my couch yeah, and yeah. Um, that was my next question really because you were just talking about the power of open communication and conversations, particularly for men. Yeah. So for you growing up, tell us a little bit about little Jeremy mm-hmm. and how many open, honest, transparent, raw conversations did you have as a little person? Yeah, it's, it's – uh I notice the emotions kick in even when you ask that question. So it, it is I – d- I grew up in a loving family in a, an amazing environment, great school life. Um, but, yeah, we weren't having open conversations. My life as a teen boy was – yeah, it was really guarded. We were, we were living those kind of masculine norms that you hear about, you know, man up, stiff up a lip – hang shit on each other the whole time. That was the kind of dialogue at school. There was no hugging. There was no saying I love you. Um, and I'm really proud of the fact that I'm still friends, my best friends and my school friends, and we've broken through that now, 20 years, whatever it is later, to um, to now express those things. Um, and, yes, yeah, so I lived in a world where, where, yeah, emotions weren't really dealt with. And when we were talking about stuff of significance, it, we weren't great at that. You know, we are good at talking about day-to-day activities, how things at work, you know, you're going to the footy this weekend, those kind of topics we could talk about. But anything that was a bit more loaded, we just didn't have the skills and the practice. Um, and I think there's a lot of men out there like that. Hmm. Um, a pivotal moment or a couple of moments in my life that I think headed me down in this path was a couple of my high school friends took their own life um, when I'm not long out of university. So when, when I was still fairly young, um, and I think that's fueled. I mean, that's in, you're in a crisis space and the worst possible outcome, but it, I think that's fueled my passion for this work as well because um, I do see it, there's the suicide prevention angle, like the worst of the worst where people feel there's no way out. Um, and then there's that. I feel, I feel there's a huge need to address terrible statistics in that space that impact much more men than women um, for these reasons, I think, the inability to seek help and be open and realise that we've all got these challenges going on in our life. We're all feeling pain. Mm. Um, and day to day, I think often we think about this as a suicide prevention initiative or thinking in that space, but for what lights me up equally is helping people to live a richer life, mm. to feeling more connected, more loved, more understood. Um, and, yeah, I'm a work in progress on this stuff. I think I've, I'm, I'm doing my best, but when I'm in a relationship with someone and the stakes go up, I find it hard. I mm. think a lot of us do to, to stay in that conversation and and to not shut down. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I think my background of being in a, like an all-boys school until year 11 and a family of all boys and I was in a middle-class Aussie family um, and I just don't think we're great at it. Mm. What, what is your default, do you think? This is a personal question, but when you're triggered, when you feel unsafe... What do you revert back to if it's not the open conversation that you're engaging in more and more now? Yeah, so I, I, I've noticed the physiological reaction happen. So when things are getting more escalated in a conversation, so I have a bit of a flight vibe going on. <laughs> if any future partners are listening to this, <laughs> beware. Um, no, which I'm, which I've been doing some work on. We're, we're working on it. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, right, all right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I do notice that my head starts spinning. Um, so often when I've been in romantic 
relationships with women, and this is a gender stereotype, they're better at it. They're better. Previous partners that I've had are, are better at staying in the conversation. And it'll feel, I've often felt in those conversations like I'm in the ring with a heavyweight because I'm just not, not haven't been in the, in the practice ring, haven't been in the gym enough um, to, to stay in these. Moments. So my kind of default is my head will start spinning. I won't think clearly. And then I tend to want to retreat. Mm. And go away and think about it. And so in couples therapy in the past, I've worked on that and said, well, I've got to do my best to stay in that conversation and, and stay as grounded as I can. And then also work with a partner and say, well, when I do retreat, my commitment is to not to take too long to come back mm. and re-enter that conversation to hopefully hear each other. Mm. And I think there's so much work for couples to be doing in genuinely hearing each other as well. So this sort of whole space around open, authentic communication like talking about what's really going on um, and then really genuinely listening to each other and seeking first to understand rather than correct and those type of those sort of fundamentals mm. done lots of reading on this stuff and I'm, I'm trying my best to implement it in my life and I think what inspires me with the work this work more than anything is the fun I mean human condition as this podcast shows is complex we're, we're complex but there's things in this space that are very, very simple and we can share them. And what I, are they? So the one that I'm fired up on at the moment, my sort of favourite at the moment is, so if we want to, we, what we in the, I lead a program for November called Speak Easy. It's a workshop program where we get all genders in the room, but it's targeting men because it's November. We get people in a room and teach them how to have more open, and to experience a more open conversation. And without wanting to blow the cover on the on the those November workshops, what happens in those workshops is we show men in particular that if they want to have a more open, authentic connection with someone that they care about in their life, often we think, if I'm worried about Sabina, I've got to work out what the magic question is or a series of questions. And why she's been a bit flat lately. How am I going to go there? What am I going to do? And what we talk about in those workshops is if you want to create an authentic connection with Sabina. Open up yourself. Hmm. Yeah. And we, can, we all have the power to do that. And then that creates permission. It creates connection between you and me. Sabina then goes, oh, Jeremy's up for it. He's okay. And he shared a bit of the crap that's going on in his life. So then it unlocks um, this connection between the two of you. So well, that's it. I mean, there's one. Anyone listening, I mean, just go there. I use it in my life all the time now, all the time in all of my relationships. I'll tell you a story about it if you don't mind. Yeah, I would love you to tell a story. All right. So I'll tell you a story how I've used Go There in my life. Um, this is an absolutely 100% genuine story. So one of my daughters, off the back of COVID, was acting odd around the home. And one of them was just at home, grumpy, not herself, you know. And I thought, how am I going to help her? We're coming out of lockdown. She was socially anxious about going back to school. And I went into her room and sat on her bed and... Tried to be a cool dad, picked up the guitar in her room and started sort of playing, playing guitar a little bit. She looks up at me. She says, Dad, like, yep, she says, can you leave? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yep, yep, okay, yep, okay. So I <laughs> left, went back to the dishes and then I was kicking around the kitchen thinking, what do I do here? Right, I'm a single dad. There's no one to bounce it off. What am I going to do? I've got the daughter that's clearly in distress and I want to mm. connect with her. I want to support her. And I thought I'd been to this speakeasy workshop a couple of days ago and we talk about go there. So I gave it about 10 minutes, knocked on her door again, went inside her room and sat on her bed and just tried to really gently went, I just started talking about the times in my life where people have been mean to me or I haven't really felt on top of my game and I wanted to lock the world out and close the door and shut the, shut, close the curtains and just being in a cocoon and didn't really feel like talking to anyone. And when I felt sad, and just sort of chatted with her about that. And within minutes, she was in tears. And I get emotional talking about this. And just in my arms and just opened the, the door. Like she just started talking to me about how she was feeling. And we had an amazing conversation. And for the rest of the night, she sort of followed me around the house. And we had this extraordinary connection off the back of that. And that was implementing a tool that I'd learned through work, which mm. was go there. Mm. Rather than me go in and try and fix her problems or pretend like I'm the expert, which we aren't, we're, mm -hmm. all, we're learning as we go along. In this instance, I just said, look, I've had this feeling. 
in some ways then she's saying, do you relate to that mm. without saying that? Yeah. And um, so that's one of the simple tools. Yeah. Um, which then I get so excited because it's simple. Mm. And anyone can do it. We can all do it. Yeah, any age, any gender, any setting, any domain. Yeah. So in this work, I feel so fortunate to learn this stuff. And with a communications background, they go, right, how do we package that up in a way that your average person that doesn't need to do a degree, and often in this space we feel like we need to be a psychologist and we're saying you don't have to do that. You just need you don't need a qualification to be able to open the door and reach, and reach out to someone and just check that they're okay. But people are afraid of it. So with campaigns like Are You OK Day, often people are like, oh, what do I do if they're saying I'm not? Mm. And so in this case, it's like you don't need to solve their problems. You don't need to be a counsellor. Mm. I mean, it's such a simple tool what you've, just, what you've just explained and you've explained it so beautifully and with a story about your daughter and the emotion and the connection. What do you think gets in the way for us of being able to take the first step to be vulnerable mm. with our children, with our colleagues and sometimes with ourselves. Yeah. Um, it's fear, mm. I think. It's fear. Of what? Um, in the sense of conversations, I think it's fear of going down a path and you it's not well lit. So you don't know where it's going. So you, you can talk about work and sport and all the safe topics because you kind of know what the answer is going to be. Um, and it's, again, that thing. When you talk about a topic like this, the heart rate goes up. Work with a fantastic organisation called Tomorrow Man. They talk about conversations with gravity. Mm. When you just feel the gravity, you feel the, the weight of the room. And I think that's what stops a lot of us opening up and, and being having that authentic moment. About, this is what's really going on for me. But, again, here's another little simple tip. <laughs> Here we go. Another thing which I think is just, again, so important to understand. So when someone in your life, and we do this in workshops, when they open up and speak authentically about what might be going on, we off, we get people's hands showing, who's the most courageous person in the room right now? And the people in the workshop, so that person that just opened up is the most courageous person in the room. They're the person I'm feeling the love and respect for. Mm. So there is this sort of thing that we need to work through, I think, as a society. We have this fear because the stakes feel high and it feels a bit unfamiliar and a bit uncertain. But the odd thing is we give credit to the people that do it and yeah. we love them more. Yeah. And so it is actually the most courageous position to be in the room is the most open position in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, that's what we try and do in the work that I'm doing is show that and hero that mm. because it, I think it's a great antidote to this fear that we all have of, oh, the stakes have gone up and going into the spot of opening up a little bit or probing a little bit around a topic that I know is sensitive for this person mm. and holding space for them and being in that conversation. <laughs> oh, shit. It's typically, I think, a fear of judgment and we know that if you're judged, you will be cut from the tribe. Mm. So there is something quite primal about if I just like fly under the radar, I won't be cut. Yeah. I might not be connected, but I won't be cut. And there lies the problem for, yeah. for so many humans. Sort of half holding on to the tribe so that we don't fear that we've been completely disconnected, but not connected in a meaningful way. Mm. And so if we know how to accept that there will be judgment, or not accept, I always talk about tolerating. How can we tolerate the judgment of others mm. and still still lean in as you're talking about? Yeah. Because sometimes people will judge. Of, most often they won't. Yeah. But we can't guarantee that that, that will never happen. Mm. So trying to play it safe actually disconnects us. Yeah, and it's something I'm personally working on this year. Like each year I try and have a theme and I'll just I'll break my little cone of silence with, my, with myself and that the theme is Rise Up. It's a, it's a lyric from ha- the musical, musical Hamilton. Yeah. And it's like step into the spotlight. So what does that mean for you? For, it's sort of what you're saying. It's professionally, personally. Mm. It's, yeah, get out of a safe zone because I feel like I've been in it a little bit over the last few years. And I think it's seeking connection, whether it's professional connection or personal connection. Mm. And that word means a lot to me. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, what you just said then really resonates. This, this authentic, this really meaningful connection we can get by being true to ourselves. Mm. It, it's, it hits much harder and it feels much better than it does to have a safe, loose connection. Mm. 
And we're craving it. Yeah. We are absolutely craving it. Yeah. I've been listening to audiobooks on it, Lost Connections and all sorts yeah. of things. Like I think there's, we are genuinely craving it. We're in a society where we've got everyone's phone number in our mobile phones and we can contact anyone via social media. But it, there is this craving, I think, for that kind of interpersonal connection. Yeah. Your work then took you a few years ago, you created The Fatherhood mm-hmm. with a couple of other mates. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that came out of nowhere. We were just dads having chats sort of like this over coffee and and noticing that a lot of men around us don't identify as dads first. They'll, they'll talk about work and other things rather than saying, oh, I'm a dad, And whereas we, we noticed a lot of mums around us. So proudly the kind of, I'm a mum. Mm. And in, in a workplace context they take time off work and it's kind of known whereas dads would sort of push the father role under the carpet a little bit probably trying to protect their careers there's lots of things going on there and looking in the media world around us we saw lots of media which is fantastic but representing the mum's perspective so babyology essential baby mama mia and we're media marketing people by trade Mm -hmm. so created the fatherhood to try and tell the male's perspective the father's perspective um, to support and inspire them but it wasn't business plans it wasn't a long thought out process it was great it was like let's do it so it happened really quickly and, yeah, that was a bunch of years ago. We've released a book since and um, and now we focus on the workplace. So we believe that the workplace is where the change really needs to happen and that's making it really safe. We believe that um, until it becomes unremarkable for men to play an equal role in domestic life, it will remain remarkable for women to have equality in the workplace. Mm. And so we are not fighting for men's rights here. We are fighting for gender equality. Um, and so the where we can shift that in the workplace is there's fantastic initiatives going around all over the place where parental leaves being made equal and flexible work's being made available. But in too many places, men aren't taking it. Mm. And why is that? And companies come to us and go, can you just – we've just got this new leave policy and no one's using it. Mm. And because it's – it's unfamiliar. It's within one generation. Our fathers weren't taking this leave. Our fathers weren't present at the birth of the kids, let alone taking six months off work because there's been a huge shift in one generation. So we need to shift all that and make it feel safe for dads to then step out of the workforce, to dads to leave early and the flow-on effect is better for everyone mm-hmm. and it kills this unconscious bias that I don't think people talk about enough. You have a 32-year-old woman and a 32-year-old man, same qualifications, going for a job. Consciously or unconsciously, you'll lean towards the guy because you, most workplaces will be thinking, well, she's probably going to have kids and she's going to be a pain in the ass because I'm going to backfill her role. And there's this, that's creating this glass ceiling for women. And so until we have a situation where men are equally involved supporting kids, I mean, I can show you the stats. The, uh, the wage difference before kids is men are earning on average $2 million bucks in their career, women are 1.9. But, so there's a gap there that needs to be addressed. As soon as they have kids, it shoots in a whole different direction. Men actually earn more, 2.5 mil. After having, they become more employable after having children, not on average. Women earn 1.3. So the page gap hugely increases off the back of having kids. So with the fatherhood, that's what we're going, right, let's address that. Let's go and make it, the celebrating the workplace involve fathers for the benefit of all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many layers to that. I mean, we could go down that. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole today, but there there is a lot of layers there and a lot of – and there is a lot of progress being made in that space. Unreal progress. Again, that's why I get really excited because we're coming along light years. COVID, for example, I think COVID in a couple of years sent us forward a couple of decades yeah. in terms of – Dad's turning up to work visibly, like on the Zoom call, and the kids bust in in the background, and all that stuff. We've come, it's we've come forward a long way. I know that you separated. Was it three years ago? Your yeah, three and a half now. Three and a half years ago, and it's not something that we talk enough about. Again, I think in light of some of what you've just shared, mm-hmm. particularly women share with their girlfriends every element of their relationship. Yep. <laughs> it's scary sometimes, <laughs> every single element that gets un- unpacked and, you know, assessed and reviewed and critiqued and explored and every other, you know, verb I could think of. Mm-hmm. But men tend not to do that so much. What is it? What was it like for you against this backdrop that you've just shared? Mm. 
because you were already swimming in this pond of yep. communication, of gender equality, of vulnerability. Yep. And then something in your life changed that was significant. Yeah. What was it like for you? Oh, terrible. Um, yeah, by far the hardest period of my life. And yeah, wow, did I need this stuff um, to survive. So yeah, it's made me more more passionate about this work and, and the need for it. Yeah, so that was a really painful time. Um, and yeah, so I didn't want this, the divorce. I prefer calling it a divorce and separation. Let's call it what it is. Um, and it's brutal. Um, for me, in my own experience, key pillars of your life get blown up. And so that's relation, your primary relationship, that's your finances, that's your family relationship, that's your friendship group, that's time with your kids. They're pretty big life pillars. It's your identity, isn't it's it? Every, Everything like, about you. Gets reframed like that. And three out of four divorces in Australia are called by women. And so there's a bunch of guys out there that are going through what I went through without the fortune that I've had of being able to work in a place like Movember or have the amazing friends that I have. A friend of mine became basically an on-call therapist. Mm. He just listened to me just for hours. Um, and I was seeing a professional as well. So I had I had called in the reinforcements. I went to a GP, went to a psych, had my friends and was just like call in the reinforcements. And there's a lot of people out there that are going through these circumstances without that. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I just don't know how they get through. Like I, I had a therapist saying, just get to the end of every day. Yeah. Like you just like just look at your day, look at what you got to do, get to the end of it, start again. What was most helpful for you? There's a lot of things that are really helpful. It's a tricky question. I think one thing that was really helpful was that kind of thinking of – I remember a sort of mantra I had was one – breath at a time, one step at a time, one day at a time. So just get through. You're in this moment of grief and pain and that get through, it'll get better. Like the white people sent me poems like the waves of grief. The waves will always be there. You'll always be – this will always be a part of you, but the waves will get smaller and just hang on. That kind of, So that advice was really helpful coming from multiple angles. Another thing that I think was really helpful through that process was having people that could help me – Pull apart emotions. And again, I don't think guys are great at this and emotions are tricky. So I was going through a period of feeling really shit. And then you got, like, so you got a wash up of anger, fear, sadness, loneliness. I don't know. All this, this layering of emotions that kind of sits. So it was the analogy that was in my mind at the time was like a cloud. Mm. And to help the clouds to have people to pull it apart and go, okay, that's anger that bit and then go that's kind of justifiable like, yeah, i can see why you feel that way and that's that um and so to, to have people that i that could help me pull apart professionals and friends who could go oh that's that and sort of recognize what they are because it's hard you're in yeah. it yeah and also we're not trained in it i know clinically i've got a menu of emotions that I often pull out because when I say to people, how are you feeling about that? Which is, you know, the quintessential psych question. <laughs> and a lot of people say bad, mad, sad. That's about that. that that's about all they come up with. Yeah, yeah. But when you offer a menu and they're able to see on the menu, I feel unimportant. I feel unseen. I feel used. I feel discarded. I feel alone. Um... And often I feel not good enough mm. is ultimately what, what sits underneath those. When those things are in front of you on your menu, people can pick them so quickly because we know we do know what it feels like when we have the language yep. in front of us. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes I think there's a lack, there's a gap between how we feel and having the language to express it, yeah. which is kind of what you're saying, that you knew this cloud was heavy and you knew that anger was probably a part of but anger is a secondary emotion yeah, yeah. and so many things sit under it that we don't, we don't either know how to, want to, can't identify what they are. Mm. And so we, we express anger. And that again points to the great progress that's being made. So my girls are going through school now and they've got these charts that you're talking about where they're trying to help the kids to pull apart yeah. and label emotions. There's no way I was doing that at school. Yeah. So again, going back through my own life experience, there's just no way. And like I've got 
elements of anxiety in my life and there's no way through my I was able to kind of go, oh, that's that. Right, so, okay, so how do you manage that? What are the tools you can help? That's why you're feeling that way. That's why your head's spinning. And so to be able to educate all of us about whether it's emotions or different things that you might be feeling and actually understand what they are, then you can do something with it. You said something to me really interesting when we had our pre-chat. You said um, after separation, most partners, most parents want 50-50. You said but before we separate, most men and women are not spending 50-50 of their energy or time with the children. Yes. Help us understand what you meant by that. I thought that was so clear and so fascinating and I'd never heard it said like that before. Yeah, so it's what it, where I've used my experience in going through a divorce with the dads that we talked to in the fatherhood because still like there's an amazing opportunity for dads now to be equally involved. Um, the opportunities are there and more often than not they're not stepping into it and we're playing out traditional gender roles and that was in my marriage. I was the primary earner. My partner, particularly in the younger years, was a primary carer. Were you aware of that at the time? No, we were sort of aware of it. But again, this is where these issues are complex because there's a, there's an element of biology where she's breastfeeding and that kind of stuff and that kind of and the provision of uh, flexible leave and care that kind of tilts towards women. That's why I feel so passionately about parental leave being equally available because it sets things up early. Then you've got a societal problem where more often than not, back to the statistics I listed out before, men are able to earn more. So then you go, right, out of the partnership, well, you should go and work because you can earn more for our family. So that until those things are addressed, they, they kind of become this circle where they reinforce each other. So I was aware of it. But then in our scenario, I was like, well, I could earn more. So I might as well go out and earn more. And that's and then so that, that was the, the, the thinking at the time. But is that the most, most fulfilling life? For me, earning more, and and that's the sort of thing that we talk to the dads about. Like, what does success look like for you? And in that scenario that we talked about, like, the most important and fulfilling part of my life, without question, is my three girls. The thing I get the most joy from, certainly, the thing I think about the most and care about the most and get the most joy from is my daughters. Um, so why was I willing to trade that? And so that's the thing that we talk to the dads about. And I use my divorce as the analogy. When you go through a divorce, more often than not, the parents, and I was 50-50, it just had to be, you know, and I I think that was fair in the way things uh, played out in our relationship. But often that's not the case and dads are really bitter about it. A lot of bitter men out there that don't get to see their kids half of the time. And so I asked dads that are in a relationship, well, why do you? A lot of dads are out there angry that they don't get 50-50 access. Well, why when your kids are young and you're in a relationship, do you set up a 80-20 set up in your relationship? Would you do that if you were split? Or would you fight for 50-50? Why? Oh, because your kids are the most important thing in your life. I have to think about that. What would, you dif- what would you do differently, Jeremy, if you knew what you know now and you were expecting your first child? What do I do differently? As a partner and parent and human worker, every every role that you take in life. That's a big question. I would um, – I think I got some things right and some things wrong. I would uh, set up a better relationship, more open relationship dynamic with my partner. And that's really complex. How long have you got? Like there's a lot there. It's open communication and also just the kind of – our roles and what we want to do as individuals and really listen to each other. The best chat I've had about that topic was with a gay dad, a guy called Ashley from Rainbow Families. He's a gay dad with two daughters and he and his partner don't have gender norms and they work out how they want to show up as parents and as partners without that. And I found that really refreshing talking to Ashley because, um, yeah, I think some of that played out in my early years of mine, me being a dad. Um, and so I'd do that differently if I had the time again. Um, so, yeah, I'd do that differently. Um, yeah, I probably – the things that we talk about in the fatherhood I would have been more on the front foot with. I did work so – when Nellie, my second daughter, was born, that's when I left the big job. I would have done it sooner because then I'd had a girlfriend. I'd had a kid for three years by the time that happened. Um, so, yeah, I would have worked flexibly sooner more like I do now. And again, being a 50-50 carer of my kids when I'm a solo dad with them, you have to work flexibly. Mm. It's not a, 
I'm dropping the kids at school. I'm not doing the meeting at 9 o'clock. I'm doing the meeting at 10. It's a black and white thing. Whereas previously, early in, I would go to the meeting. I'd, I'd kind of work it out with my ex-partner. So if I had my time again, I'd almost think like a single parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. More communication with your partner but like a single parent at work. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. like a summary. Yeah. Yeah, and I can hear as you're telling your story that there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of grief and there's a lot of wonder in where you're at but there's also a new way of creating and deciding and choosing what you want more and less of. Mm. And I wonder if you would have arrived at that if you were still married. Probably not. Um, probably not. So it has been, I mean, with, through pain and grief comes growth, I imagine. Yeah, he's nodding over there. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I had to do heaps of work. It's like when you asked before about what, what, what was the most helpful thing, the one thing I didn't get to, I thought that was pretty helpful too, was acceptance. Like actually someone saying, I know there's lots of crap that came off the back of your relationship splitting up. But there's good stuff too and maybe you need to accept that things weren't great in some ways and things are good now. And I'm still working on that. Um, But that was really helpful to have someone go, firstly, you need to accept what's happened and move on. But there's more to it than that. There's sort of accepting what I just said. And like you're saying, there's growth and there's good things to come from it. I mean, I know another conversation that we had, not specifically about you, but when we talked on the phone initially was that whoever calls a divorce kind of gets lambasted as being the one who's rocking the boat Mm -hmm. or ripping a family apart or doing the wrong thing or, you know, whatever the societal sort of judgment is that comes with that. And if you're the recipient of that, it's understandable that you might go there. And yet often the person that calls the divorce is the, is, has experienced a relationship in a way that hasn't worked for them. Mm -hmm. And then the person who, who is the recipient of that news, take some time to catch up or to acknowledge or recognise that perhaps there were some things that weren't going so well. Yep, for sure. And it's hard. It's really hard. You've got to shine a light on the things that weren't working. And, and again, I had people helping me with that. And you don't want to just look at life through a negative lens. You don't want to think that – because you want to also, I think it's important, and this is really hard, particularly in the early stages of a separation, to still recognise that there were good things – Otherwise, you throw the you know baby out with the bathwater. Mm. You want to recognise that well. You you had three children together. Yeah. Um, you shared a life together. You had a lot of experiences together. You learned and grew. You know there was there was good things, not enough to sustain the marriage, but it wasn't all bad. I think that's important as well. And yeah, that's different to what you're saying. You're saying I needed to look at what wasn't working, to accept what what wasn't good, so that I could step away or make sense of it or Yeah, pull cope. it apart and have people say, well, I know you had a great holiday a year ago and you can remember walking around with ice creams, that kind of thing, the kind of mental imagery about what, what? And then go, well, hang on a minute, how about that thing that wasn't working so well? How about that? Um, so to actually work through them, I think it, we were, and yeah, different, different people have different perspectives depending on how they've experienced a split like that. Um, but yeah, there's going to be differences of opinion and you can focus on different aspects. Mm. So if someone was listening, particularly of the male variety, was listening to to this conversation and they had just experienced, or, or women as well, a separation, they're in the early stages of a separation, what do you think they need to know? Mm, I think... I would go back to the advice that it's very painful and it's one one day at a time. Just get through. It gets it's gets easier, I would say that. Um, it does get easier for sure and it's really hard and you've just got to work through the crap. It is really, really difficult. Mm. Um, the more amicably, I hate that word, but I just can't believe I just used it, <laughs> but the better it can be with the partner, particularly if you've got kids. Like someone said something to me recently is you never split up and I think that's very true. So accepting that the relationship's over in its previous form whilst also accepting that the relationship will never end if you have kids yeah. I think is important. And another thing, um, I'm now almost four years on. I'm a way better person now than I was in the relationship. 
um, any ladies out there listening that might want to go on a date, <laughs> I'm a good catch. Okay, get in touch with me. I'm going to broker the deal. I'm going to broker the deal. I'd like to take you on as um, my, I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah. But I do I say that sort of flippantly, but I do feel like a, a more experienced, layered, weathered person um, off the back of it. And that's through dealing with the pain and dealing. It wasn't, it hasn't, still isn't easy. Mm. Um, but I can look at it now in an, with some distance, a little bit of distance from that point of the point of impact kind of thing for people that that are just splitting right now and their world's spinning. That you you do like you do start new chapters and you do meet new people and you do get a new home. I was devastated to lose my family home. It was layered with meaning for me. I'd built a home for my kids. And, you know, when I say built it, we built it together. But for me, that was so meaningful and it was sold. Mm. That was devastating. It's not to say there won't be another one though. And so that's the thing when you move forward and it takes time, it takes a lot of time, but they're new chapters and I'm in a new home now and I'm able to build that with my girls and it's really exciting. So they, 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 it's, it's, it's just down the track and you've just got to work your way to it. Mm. You, you really are so um, eloquent in expressing how you are a work in progress. Because we started talking about your career, now talking about you in the personal and relationship and parenting space. But the theme that runs throughout seems to be that you are peeling back the layers and recognising what you want more of and what you want less of, particularly even in the workplace. Like mm. you've come from this, you know, this com sort of uh, marketing world but where you were doing work for evil, not good, in your words, um, which I relate to. I know we talked about, you know, my comms background and having the same experience and finally working at the body shop was my last PR job because I went there looking for meaning and purpose and then once I'd sucked that dry, I made the career change to psychology because I couldn't find more meaning and purpose in the comms space. So I yeah. love what you've done is, of course, you can always find, like I, I hit a, a brick wall then, but you've continued to use all of your expertise and your passion passion and your knowledge to help in so many other domains and that was another theme that I just I wanted to touch on is the importance of doing work that is meaningful Mm. and what happens when we ignore that yeah it's been a point of tension and continues to me to this day I used to in my mind separate work that I'd like with work that I'll get paid well for. Mm. And they're almost mutually exclusive back at the start of my career. I thought, no, 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 well, you, you can be a musician and you won't get paid well. Or you can like, kind of like, pull them apart. But I've got some fantastic friends around me that are following their passions and have got it being paid well. And got to, that, that's not the measure of success, by the way. Living a fulfilling life, doing work that they like. And so I've tried to put those together. And it's hard. I'm not going to sit here and go, oh, my God, I feel so fulfilled and it's so easy. And rich. I'm rich. rich and fulfilled. <laughs> Done. It's hard. It's really hard. And I'm making those decisions all the time. I'm a father of three kids. I've been through a divorce. That wasn't great financially. And so it's tough. And so constantly I'm thinking, right, what, where do I want to send my career how much do I want to work and where do, you know, where, how much time do I want to be dedicated with my kids? How much do I want to be working? How much am I going to earn? What's it going to – so that's a constant juggle for me. But I've been trying to find a way to do work of meaning that can sustain and, again, sustain a lifestyle I'm comfortable with. And I think we all need to work out what that is for us. I wanted to send my girls to private school because I was lucky enough to go to private school. I don't think that's going to happen. And so I then need to accept that and find what my new version of financial provision is and how I'll um, work and provide based on that. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I mean, I love doing work of the, that it lights me up. But again, it's, that's, that's an individual thing. I had a fantastic mentor of a boss, the first guy that ever employed me, a guy called Bryce Ott. And I was walking around advertising agencies as a young guy going, nothing here matters. Like me going, it doesn't matter. We're making TV ads and who cares? And he had a fantastic way of looking at it. He said for him, running a strategy workshop and being able to provide a service to the people in the room and bring about unity and clarity, that's providing a service. He gets great satisfaction from that. And so that's impact and meaning for him. He's impacting those people and that's wonderful. And that's, So we can all get that meaning in lots of different ways. Um, and for me, I've just been lucky enough and f- 
to be working in this health space where I can take some of the communication work that I've done in the past and get out of bed and can work in a space working with organisations like Movember um, that doing work that lights me up. Mm. Whenever I ask people about meaning in their work, the answer always, every single time, implicates the way they impact another. Mm. But that doesn't mean we have to build an orphanage or be Mother Teresa or save the whales. Impacting another like yeah, Otto. Like Bryce, Bryce Otto, <laughs> yes. <laughs> what his name was. Um, he was impacting the people in that, in that workshop. Yeah. That's meaning. Yeah, it's really meaningful. And that's exactly right. You can be an accountant working in an organisation if having really clear books and helping people work their way through the numbers. If they're helping people with their bass every quarter, they are making a massive difference in someone's life. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Because that's the thing that I want to do least with my time. So, yeah, it might be a matter of sort of rethinking what meaning and impacting the life of another means. Oh, for sure. And so that's, again, why I often say it's not working for World Vision because people would sometimes think that mm. like oh no 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 like it's not that and it could be sorting out someone's bass if providing that service to someone is meaningful to you um well it will be meaningful to you because it's helping them yeah and you can see that you help and that's yeah i've had millions of exa- times in my life where someone's helped me out with stuff like that i'm um, going back to the divorce story my brother's really good with numbers and he helped me through the financial settlement in a way like i just wasn't thinking straight he steps in and sorted it out mm. And it was such an amazing kind of coming in in, you know, white and shining armour, whatever he's not, shining armour kind of came and just sorted it out. And mm. that was an amazing service provision to me, what he did. Yeah. So meaning comes in different shapes and sizes. Yeah. Even in accountants. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's talk about where you're at now and what's next. You're at, you running a agency called Radiate. Yes. And... What's a day in the life of uh, Radiate look like? Yeah, so Radiate's a communications consultancy, kind of strategically focused. And my work is mostly in the health space. So I work with Movember, um, half of my weeks with Movember, leading men's mental health projects with them. Um, I work with another organisation called Transitioning Well, who are organisational psychs doing great work supporting people through key life transitions in an organisational context. Um, and other little bits and pieces on the side. But that's the main work that I'm doing at the moment. So really... Are you looking for more work? And if people are listening, thinking, here's a guy who knows his, you know, he knows his comms skills, would you take on other clients, small clients, big clients? What? Absolutely, yeah. So I work because of my experience in going through a divorce. I worked on a family law business a little while ago. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, always looking to support people and the fatherhood work continues so that's going into organizations and having these kind of conversations with men and women around parenting and around challenging those gender norms in the workplace Mm. what do you want for your three girls when they when they grow up Mm, so much um the first thing to mind a lot but the first thing to mind when you ask that is for them to walk their path um yeah, the, the path that they cho- that, that suits their needs. So rather than try and fit into what my hot wishes or expectations are, or they're each other. I think they're beautifully compara- compatible, but beautifully different. My daughters. So I don't. I think that they will find their own paths. I'm really excited by that. They've got different strengths and different interests. So my hope for them is they they listen to their instinct. They listen to their heart. Probably sounds a bit closer to their gut. What lights them up and and go get that, go and do that mm. um, without feeling social pressure. And uh, I doubt your ex-wife's going to be listening, but if she did or is, what do you need her to know now? Oh, my God. <laughs> Question without notice. Um, what do I need her to know? Um, I abs- it's, it's been a really hard process. Um, what would I like her to know? I'd like her to know that... We're both absolutely still united in looking after the children, that we both need to continue to make our communication as positive as it can possibly be. And I guess I'd also tell her I'm doing heaps of work myself in acceptance and getting to the point where some of those emotions are dialed back but I'm not there yet. Mm. So that might be sadness, anger, acceptance, resentment. 
couple of those little things <laughs> pop up every now and again and I'm watching them and I'd like to get to the point where, yeah, they're not as prominent. Mm. I know there'll be many who relate There'll be many people who relate to what you just said. So as you may know, we like to finish our chats on human cogs with the same question, which is who do you think is doing human well? I think this is such a hard question because when I think of my, when I thought about this question, I straight away went to who's winning, kind of who's thriving as who's humaning well. So I was thinking, oh, who's thriving? And my brain went to that space. And then my brain went into my, well, my kids because I've got an intimate relationship with how they're going and I think they've been amazing in what they're going through in their life and so I thought about that. But I think the nature of the human condition is um, constant evolution, some wins, some losses, some, you know, the constant challenge. We've all got shit going on. And so then I thought I don't want to answer it with who's winning. I don't want to answer it with my favourite rock star. I don't want to answer it with... <laughs> You know, whoever it might be because because then that's kind of not true to what I really think so I think it's it's the, it's the people out there that are that are and again not wanting to sound cliche but the people that are working on themselves and developing the humans that are humaning and feeling the pain and finding the joy and um, and experiencing life in all its colors and so that led me to think I think it's the person listening to this podcast. Because if they've tuned into this podcast and what all the work that you produce, Sabina, and the conversations you have, they're inquisitive and they're asking questions of the world around themselves and they're asking questions of themselves. And so I think it's the person that's listening is humaning well. Oh, good PR for us, but a beautiful, a beautiful call out to all our listeners and actually speaks volumes about you. That that's what we, first of all, you've thought a lot about that question but that it's not about people who are winning. It's about people who are doing, who are living and who are feeling. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. It was many, many gems to be taken away, probably more than you know. That's my takeaway. Thanks for the chat. Lovely yeah. talking. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do do human human well. well.